Whitey Bulger, a stone-cold killer and one of the biggest names in American crime history. As law enforcement closed in, Whitey Bulger went on the run for 16 years. That is, until our guest today joined the hunt. Welcome to Chasing Evil. I'm Chris Godzik. Murder, arms trafficking, racketeering, extortion, money laundering, narcotics distribution, the list is long and the charges against him were many. And as things started to heat up for James Whitey Bolger in Boston, he went on the run. And it stayed that way for 16 years. And it may have gone on quite a bit longer, were it not, for Neil Sullivan. Neil Sullivan is my guest today. He was a deputy U.S. marshal for 26 years and four months. Isn't that right? That is correct. I like to get it just exactly right. You spent most of your career in Albany, Boston, Southern New York. And what makes your career slightly different, you spent most of your time in fugitive hunting. Yes, that was uh, somewhat unique, the amount of time I spent in fugitive operations, probably uh... 22 of the 26 years, I think would be a fair estimate of the amount of time I spent on the street. So it's no surprise that when you came into uh, the Whitey Bulger hunt, it ended fairly shortly after. Yeah, I had a, I had quite a bit of experience at that yeah. point. I went on okay, the Whitey Bulger. We're going to give you, we're, look, we're going to give you yeah. the props. You got to take them. <laughs> you just got to take them. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> So let's start back at the beginning. We know Whitey Bulger was born in 1929 in a housing project in South Boston, and he was arrested in 1956 for robbing banks and served nine years, right? Correct. Nine years. And part of that sentence being in Alcatraz. Right. And then yeah. in 1965, he comes back to South Boston and becomes involved with the Winter Hill Gang. Correct. And take us from, from his involvement with the Winter Hill Gang and, and describe what was going on in Boston at the time. Yeah, it was actually quite interesting because Bulger missed uh, a, a gang war that occurred that started in 1961 and led to dozens of killings. Um, between mostly Irish mafia uh, figures in Boston. So he was in prison during the height of that gang war. And when he got out in 1965, it was actually pretty good timing for him because he, you know, had the street credibility serving nine years in federal prison, being in Alcatraz. And a lot of the people that <laughs> he would have been with were, were dead or in prison. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he didn't... Uh, become the head of the Winter Hill Gang immediately, but he had a quick, very quick rise. So what kind of guy was Whitey Bulger that would enable him to eventually rise to lead the Winter Hill Gang? How did he make his reputation? Yeah, I mean, he, he was known as a tough guy. He was known as a guy who served this time without, you know, turning state's evidence on anyone. Um, he was known as a fighter. He just had a tough reputation. And obviously the fact that he spent time in Alcatraz even added to that reputation. And when he got out in 1965, he, he tried to go straight for a very short period of time. And he was right back into the 
the rackets and he he rose very quickly and that timing was also a big part of it because <laughs> a lot of the, uh, the the criminal underworld was in turmoil from this multiple year mm-hmm. gang war that had gone on between two uh rival irish uh american groups in the boston area right he's with the winter hill gang and then in the mid 70s something happens if you can go into that uh, kind of changed the trajectory of his life when he crossed paths with the FBI. Yes, he became an informant. Let's not gloss over that. That's a huge thing for yes. someone who is the head of a crime family. Yes. Uh, and it's not that it hasn't been done before, but for him, what what motivated him to become an informant? He was called what was called a high echelon informant. Um, one thing that probably pushed Bulger over the edge into cooperation is the FBI agent who was his handler was someone that he knew from South Boston, an uh, uh-huh. agent named John Conley, who was quite a bit younger than Bulger, but they did come up in the same neighborhood. They didn't know of each other. So I think that added to the level of trust that Bulger put in that uh, he could trust Conley, you know, and uh, we got to remember at that time, the FBI's top mandate was uh, La Cosa Nostra, you know, the traditional Italian-American organized Mm -hmm. crime. Mm -hmm. So that was their top mandate. So Bulger was in a different group. You know, he began cooperating just against La Cosa Nostra, the more traditional mafia based in the North End. And he was Mm -hmm. called with what's called a high echelon informant, him and his main... uh, his main partner, Steve, Stephen the Rifleman Fleming. The FBI was essentially going to help them get rid of La Cosa Nostra and p- potentially enable them to expand their turf. It's really under debate how much help Bulger was and actually what information he actually provided that really helped prosecute La, La Cosa Nostra members in, in the North End. But there were prosecutions and this was their rival group. So in mm-hmm. theory, now he's putting his rivals in prison. Um, and now his group of, of gangsters is getting more and more powerful out of out of default because now they're the only show in town. Right. So this went on from the 1970s and into the 1980s. That was probably the height of Bulger's power was the 1970s and 80s. Right. And then in 1995, he goes on the run. Yes, that's when it finally caught up with them. And after why? Not, Why did it catch up? They were finally able to build, and it wasn't a homicide case at first. It was a it was a drug case, uh, but they were finally able to build a case against him, a federal case in 1995. Unfortunately, Bulger was tipped off and went on the run before the indictment even came out. Right, um, and that's really when his uh, flight from justice began at the very end of 1995. And then in 2000, in another trial, because it hasn't come out yet. But it finally it comes out, I guess, in some pretrial motions that Whitey Bulger is a rat, that Whitey Bulger is an FBI informant. Yes. Uh, And it comes out in 2000. So now the world knows, in particular, the underworld knows that he's a rat. There was a lot that happened after Bulger went on the run. There was uh, further indictments came up in the late 90s or early 2000s is when Bulger was actually charged with the 19 homicides. He had already been been on the run for several years. Mm -hmm. Um, And about this time is when Kevin Weeks, another one of his main henchmen, was arrested and actually led uh, police to numerous bodies of uh, homicide victims from over the years. And Um, let's let's talk about some of the homicide victims. He was absolutely ruthless. I mean, he was yes. brutal. It, it's I went over some of the 
uh, murders they thought he was involved in, and he had a pension for shooting people in the head. Yeah, there were 19 murders on the indictment. Eventually, he was only found guilty of 11 of those 19 murders, but they say there was actually many more uh, murders even than those 19. Bulger wasn't necessarily the trigger man in every single one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two of his main henchmen were were Stone Cold Killers, uh, Stephen Fleming and John Moderano. Uh, with the trigger men and a lot of those killings. But uh, yeah, between the three of those guys alone, there was a lot of homicides being committed in the 70s and 80s. And talk about the one homicide that he probably did commit on the, I guess, the daughter of one of his partners. Yes, uh, Deborah Hussey uh, was originally what would be the stepdaughter of Stephen Fleming. Uh, as she got older, they actually got into like a dating dating relationship um Uh although she started as his stepdaughter uh essentially because he was dating this uh this woman's mother uh but eventually bulger um killed debbie uh debbie hussey in a home in uh east third street in south boston when they believed she was a liability anyone who who became someone they feared would talk you know the someone they they had concerns about that was their Right. The way they handle things, you know, but it was they, very, it was very personal for her. He 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 strangled her to death. Yes. Right? The allegation is that he strangled her. Yes. I mean, that can't get any more personal. Yeah. He's on the run. This went on for some time. And on May 2nd, 2011, after uh, the Osama bin Laden takedown, Whitey Bulger moves to number one on the FBI's most wanted list. And the reward for information leading to his capture is now at $2 million. Yes, there's not an official ranking of the top 10. Uh But in reality, he was the most wanted person in the country at that point. I think everyone considered Osama bin Laden, you know, a higher target than Bulger when uh, bin Laden was alive. But Mm -hmm. once uh, once he was out of the picture, bin Laden, uh, most people considered Bulger the most wanted man in the United mm-hmm. States. And he did have the highest uh, reward money available for him of any other criminal. So he's been on the run for 15 years and you come into the scene and join the task force. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I had just transferred to Boston, a voluntary transfer. I was sitting in court duty, one of the few times in my career where I was not on the street because I was told when I transferred to Boston, I'd have to do court duty for six months. So I was uh, fulfilling that obligation of mm-hmm. bring, escorting prisoners to court for a couple of months. And uh, the bosses approached me one day. They had heard of my reputation from when I was in New York prior. Um, that I had a lot of experience in fugitive investigations. And they called me into the office one day 
and said, hey, we've got an offer for you if you're if you're willing to take it, which was to join the Bulger Task Force full time. Why did the Bulger Task Force still have steam? It's been 15 years. So by that time, sometimes uh, some of these uh, uh, fugitive hunts, I would imagine, you know, there are there are other targets that are closer. You can kind of see that there might be an apprehension in the near future. But this guy has already been on the run for 15 years and the trail was cold, right? Yeah, the, tra- the trail could not have been colder. There had been times over those years where the FBI had many people assigned to that fugitive Bulger task force. You know, they had sent in some of their best agents from around the country to spend, you know, months in Boston at a time. But by the time I started, um, I mean, it was <laughs> it was a ghost town. I mean, it was it was basically running down leads that came in because there were thousands and thousands of leads over the years, mostly lookalikes or, you know, people meaning well, but, you know, it's not really him. And that's really all it was at that point was, you know, two agents or so. Uh, just running down the random leads that would come in, placing Bulger in different spots around the world. So, I mean, it couldn't have been colder. And, and it was, uh, you know, not the the thriving task force that I'm sure had been years before when they were still, you know. Right. From what I understand from other people who are involved in fugitive investigations, it's not easy to completely and utterly disappear for a short period of time, yet alone 15 years. Correct. I mean... Most criminals, 99% of criminals are not capable of going on the run for 15 years. Uh, but Bulger was different in many, many ways from your average criminal. I mean, he was much smarter. He had the financial means. Um, he just didn't do the, the mistakes that your average criminal um, does that gets them caught. So uh, he was able to stay out there for that period of time just because of the way he operated and his intelligence and his financial backing. Mm-hmm. And was he able to cut ties completely with his associates or was he just very clever in how he was contacting them? He did cut ties with everyone eventually, but the first year or two, he was contacting people back in South Boston in the first year or two on the run, but mm-hmm. he was taking extreme cautions uh, when he was contacting them. You know, if he wanted to talk to a family member, he would call the neighbor's house. Or if you wanted to talk to uh, crime buddies, they would set up a phone call at a pay phone at you know, 6 p.m. on Sunday, answer this phone, you know, and then Bulger would make the call from somewhere where he wasn't staying. You know, if he was staying at a motel, he wouldn't make that phone call from a pay phone at that motel. You know, he was he was right. smart. How much money did you think he had access to to be able to do that? So when he was captured in, in uh, 2011, he still had eight hundred thousand dollars in cash uh, hidden in the apartment. Okay. So, I mean, he must have gone on the run with well in excess of a million dollars. All right. So let's take it back. Day one, you go into the task force. The trail is cold. How do you guys reinvigorate it? We had carte blanche to do whatever we wanted. It was me and another FBI agent, a guy named Phil Torsney, a, a fantastic agent who spent his whole career in Cleveland. He was sort of like me in a way where he had spent his whole career in and fugitive uh, investigations, which is even rarer in the FBI than it is in the Marshal Service. We had a fantastic analyst named Roberta Hastings who had done uh, work on the case for many, many years. So she was like the in-house expert on, mm-hmm. you know, who's who of the case. And we just started from scratch. And, you know, those first couple of months, it was mostly interviews. We, we were talking to anyone who we could find in the file who is still alive, that was still around that we could speak to about Bulger. You're starting from scratch after 15 years of all the work that had been done, the people that had been interviewed, 
you're now going to re re-interview those same people. Yes. Yeah. I mean, reading hundreds of pages of reports and, and re-interviewing. And a lot of these people, we go to interview them and they had been interviewed multiple times each. You know, um, it became apparent pretty quick that we were not going to catch Bulger through interviewing people. People didn't want to cooperate. And, and it also became apparent that Bulger wasn't dumb enough to have contact. You know, your average person on the street in South Boston was not going to know where Whitey Bulger was. He's just not right. that dumb to, you know, even his family members, you know, when he would have contact with them, they wouldn't know where he was. They would just know a way to get in contact with him, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't have known, oh, he's at, you know, 111 Main Street. Right, right. He didn't put anyone in that position where they would know where he was at. And it's fair to assume that he was not only running from the law, but he was probably more afraid of being tracked down by La Cosa Nostra now that he was identified as an informant some years ago now. I'm sure he had concerns that, you know, he knew his reputation was now tarnished instead of, you know, the, the tough mafia guy. He now had the reputation of being a cooperator, which I'm sure uh, made him pause for safety, you know, that there might be other criminal elements out there who might want to get him something. So you're re-interviewing people. That's not producing any trails that you can follow up on or or actionable intelligence. People slamming doors in our face. Right. People saying he's dead. Why are you looking for a dead man? People telling us uh, that the government has him hidden away on an Air Force base. Like, you know, you're lying to me. You guys know where he is. I mean, every conspiracy theory in the book, it it was almost like just a myth at that point, you know, in the interviews, none of them were leading anywhere. And it, it became apparent to me pretty quick. And I think Phil Torsney would say the same thing. We realized we weren't going to catch him by interviewing people with the traditional techniques. We knew pretty early on that it was going to have to be the media. But that was the only way we were going to catch this guy is through um, uh, some sort of media blitz of some sort and just get that one call. It just takes one call from one person who's right and really knows these two. And in the prior 15 years, had they tried that tactic? They had, he had been on America's Most Wanted 15 times or so. He had been on multiple TV shows. They had tried it a lot, but we did sort of change the tactics, <laughs> the campaign well, we put together. Finally right. More. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that. So what were you going to do that for the past 15 years, other agents hadn't done? The, the first thing we did, um, we, we came to the realization that Bulger was still in the United States. There was a lot of people who believed he was overseas. You know, the Caribbean, Mexico, and Europe, because there were so many, so many calls over the years placing him in these different places. And and, and that was a very commonly held belief that he was not in the country. But uh, we quickly came to the determination that that was not correct, that he was still in the United States. The FBI had put together his first two years on the run pretty well. You know, they were able to eventually track where he was in those first two years. Where was he during the first two years? How did he spend it? Long Island um, to Grand Isle, Louisiana, uh, Chicago, out in California. You know, they were able to put together a pretty good uh, Florida. Uh, He had safety. He had safety deposit boxes all over the place because he was actually prepared for a life on the run. You know, we we became convinced he was still in the States that he was still with Catherine Grieg, his girlfriend. And we were also convinced that he was going to be in a warm weather climate near the ocean where retirees would be. You know, we, we, we knew he wasn't going to be in a place like North Dakota or, you know, something like that. We knew he was going to be somewhere, you know, 
warm, enjoyable. Why? Uh, uh, it just it fit where he had gone those first two years. Uh-huh. You know, okay. he was going to big cities or he was going to like beach type towns, you know, right. Clearwater, Florida, Grand Isle, Louisiana, places like that. Um, he couldn't be, he didn't want to be on the East Coast, you know, uh, Northeast at least. You know, he wanted to be somewhere far enough away from the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Florida is always sort of nerve wracking for someone from Massachusetts to hide in because there's so many, you know, people from Massachusetts going down there all the time to get right. away from the cold weather. You know, so we we yeah. really start to put together like parts of the country we thought he would be more right. likely to be at. And that was a big part of our media campaign was targeting those areas. Did you think that he would still have a, I'm assuming he had a Boston accent? Yeah, that it would be hard to hide that. You know, we figured he'd be in an area where there's lots of retirees, you know, Uh that warm weather. And another big thing about this uh, media campaign, a a huge thing that I I failed to mention is it really put pictures of her up there, not him. You know, we had been putting pictures or not, not me personally, but the FBI had been putting pictures of Whitey Bulger up for, you know, 15 years and it hadn't worked. We had right. brand new pictures of Catherine Grieg that had never been um, published before. Uh, plastic surgery photos um, that had never been put out in the public before. And that was the photos we used on the media blitz with an $100,000 reward for her and knowing that they were still together. Um, and that's really, and then targeting those parts of the country. You know, we just sort of did a you know, you cut the United States in half from north to south. We sort of did from the south part all along those coasts, you know, right. from from the Carolinas, to Florida to the Texas coast then Arizona and uh, California. You know, and those are the areas we really concentrated, um, you know, uh, this uh, FBI public service uh, announcement we put out um, with pictures of Kathy Greig more than Bulger himself. Did you have a budget for, for the media blitz or were you relying on public we did. announcements? Okay. We had a, a $50,000 budget, which actually became sort of interesting because that prevented us from doing New York City and Los Angeles because the costs were so great. So San Diego was done, but uh, Los Angeles was not done for budgetary reasons because right. that would have taken such a huge hit out of the 50000 So uh, that was the only reason Los Angeles was not included. But there were also... Uh, the FBI public affairs people did have some very good contacts. You know, they were, this was put out on numerous TV shows too. It wasn't just the, the public service announcement, but, you know, Kathy and Regis and all these different shows uh-huh. did a, a, a storyline on it on the same day of the release. So uh, we were hitting it from multiple angles and billboards, digital billboards throughout the country. What date did that start, that digital campaign? Uh, June 20th of 2011. When did new tips start coming yeah, in? They started rolling in right away. Um, I wound up doing the day shift. I had numerous analysts and agents who weren't working the Bulger case full time, you know, just agents helping right. out with massive amount of tips. So I was in charge of the day shift. Agent Torsney was in charge of the night shift. And uh, yeah, I mean, hundreds of tips starting from the 20th, the 21st. Right. And then the 22nd wind up being the, uh, the, the big day where everything. So, uh, so hundreds of tips are coming in hundreds. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a, a huge hundred. number. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a big number to actually take seriously. And some of them you, I mean, did you get, cause I've done, we've done other episodes where psychics were calling in. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you got psychics or if you got people that were placing him in the most obscure places that were obviously yeah. not real. I mean, how, how did you say, okay, these are the ones, these are the things that we're looking for that might have some commonality or that might, yeah. you know, we're looking for these key words. How did you focus down on, on the tips that might be more credible? It, it was a lot of tips, but when you start considering what tips you can actually take action on, there would be a lot of tips. I saw him in a mall in Las Vegas five years ago. Okay. You know, no license okay. plate number, no date, no time. Right. That, that, that cannot be run down. You know, you're right. not going to be able to get video from a Las Vegas mall five years ago when you don't even have a date or, you know, that's just right. Nothing can be done with that. The only thing that can be done with that is if you start getting a lot of calls from that city. Then you start to wonder, okay, maybe something's going on here. Right. So uh, a, a lot of the tips were sort of low priority pile because there's really nothing that can be, you know, no meat to it that you can actually investigate. Um, but on the, the second day, on the 21st, we got seven different tips or so, about seven, um, from Biloxi, Mississippi. So that really, uh, that second day we were focusing big time on Biloxi, Mississippi, not uh -huh. too far from Grand Isle, Louisiana, where we known he had been in those early right. years. And just the fact that we had gotten seven tips in one little city. Um, was he, was he up, seen in the casinos or in restaurants uh, or just walking on the beach? It was lookalikes. You know, we ran them all down. We ran down all the tips. Uh, not when I say we, we sent leads to the FBI in right. Mississippi to run down those leads. We had made a decision that we weren't going to jump on a plane and travel every time we got excited about a tip because then we would be missing the tips coming in and people who didn't really know the case would be the one vetting these tips. And we didn't want that. We right. wanted myself and Agent Torsney to be vetting the tips because we knew the case the best. Um, and Roberta Hastings, the analyst, we didn't want uh, tips being run down by people who just weren't familiar with the case. That's just mm -hmm. not, not a good practice. So day two, the Biloxi thing, we were on, on the phone with the agents in Biloxi all day, having them run down six, seven different tips, which all wound up being lookalikes or dead ends. Um, right. So at this point, he's 81 years old. Yeah, he's 81 okay. years old in, in 2011. Yeah. And that was part of the reason why when we're interviewing these people, you know, half the people we talked to said we were chasing a ghost, you know, that he was right. dead somewhere. And why are we still chasing a guy who's dead? Right. That's right. Not correct. Okay. So Biloxi is not, doesn't turn out to bear the fruit, fruit that you were hoping for. Yeah. And the second day, maybe halfway through the second day, we, we figured, uh, all the tips in Biloxi had, had run dry and, uh, we were just now focusing on the other pile of tips that were still coming in. I got up um, on June 22nd. Um, I think I got there at six or seven o'clock to start the day shift. It was early. And I got in and there were uh, numerous tips from the night before that I was going through. You know, some had come in by phone. Some had come in by email. Uh, they come in through multiple different um, methods. Mm -hmm. And I had a pile in front of me and I started going through them. And within an hour, I had realized that three of the tips were from the same person coming in wow. from three different ways. Um, someone who was really trying to get in touch with us and someone who was saying, I know exactly who they are and where they are. And that was wound up being the tip that uh, eventually led to the capture. Right. And can you can you sometimes separate or will it be in the notation when you're looking like this person mentioned the wanting the reward four times? 
in, during the conversation. Is that and 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 does it kind of give away that these people are potentially yeah. more credible or not if they are mentioning money, if they're not mentioning money? You know, the tipster that wound up being providing the tip that really was Bolger was not talking about money at all. You know, it was talking about that you know they knew exactly who Bulger and Grieg were, knew their aliases, knew their address. Right. And throughout that morning, I was able to verify more and more what that tipster said as being true. And the tip just became more and more credible as the day went on. Did you uh, have any other tips that gave a, that that identified him being in the area that this other tipster uh, suggested? No, there had been tips over the years placing Bulger in Southern California. That's for sure. There, there had been tips, uh, but there had been tips placing Bulger almost everywhere. And in all fairness, okay, there had been right. tips, you know, 15 years of him being on the run and being on the top 10 most wanted list. There were tips placing him pretty much everywhere. Right. Uh, there were tips over the years in the San Diego and, and L.A. area. I believe there was even a tip placing him in Santa Monica at one point, but not, you know, at a specific address or at a specific right. alias. Um, so that, you know, tip years prior might have been credible. So this was um, a very, very specific. Oh, tip. yeah. This tip not only provided the address, provided the names they were using. It provided their personalities, which fit perfectly to the very likable Kathy Grieg, to the very unlikable Whitey Bulger. You know, the accents, the age difference, um, how uh, secretive they were. Um, their love for animals, everything that was said in the tip just sounded exactly like uh, Bulger and Grieg. And there was another a big thing that the aliases were provided. You know, when I was with the Marshal Service, I had access to a lot of amazing databases, you know, that the regular public doesn't have access to. Right. And I started working up the name of, of Charlie and uh, Carol Gaskell, which were the aliases that the tipster said they were living under. And I was able to determine that People with that name were living at that address, but I couldn't find a date of birth. I couldn't find a social security number. I couldn't find a California driver's license or a California ID. All these databases that like a normal human being who is not hiding would show up in, they were not showing up in any of these databases. Had you ever seen anything like that before? No, it's just incredibly uncommon, incredibly mm -hmm. uncommon. I mean, maybe someone who's undocumented Right. who's just been in the country a short period of time, who's undocumented, who's living under the radar. But for someone in their 70s or 80s, who's you know been in the United States all their lives, it's just unheard of that they were not showing up in some of these databases. Right. But I was did find them in one database, placing them at that exact address. Of course, you see on television, uh, someone goes to a computer and they have access universal access to every database of every law enforcement agency in the world. And yeah. one thing that struck me was how close all these different databases were. And you needed somebody from one agency to get into one database and yeah. somebody else from other, that these things are not right. all linked together. They're so not. it requires quite a bit of work yeah. to actually go into the databases. There's not yeah. that universal search button. Absolutely. All different databases. I was, I probably went into five to seven different databases doing my searches that morning. Uh, and then to search California by name, if you don't have a date of birth, we actually had to have call agents in California to search just by name. I would have been able to do the search if I had date of births or socials, but I didn't. 
so we actually had to call California to do a name search and they came up with nothing as a driver's license or, you know, this would be essentially like a person going their whole life without ever having a credit card, ever having a driver's license, paying for everything in cash. Uh, right. that, that would be, and just, that's just so uncommon. You know, people so don't live that way. That's a massive red flag. It was a huge red flag, right. you know, that I was just not finding them in every database I checked, except right. one that put them at the address where the tipster said they were. Okay. Uh, it was, yeah, the, the tip was, you know, on fire at that point. Like this, I think this is how. So you're, you're getting giddy at this uh, point. Yeah. Gone through like maybe the day before thinking we may never catch this guy. You know, right. I may be spending years of my life chasing a ghost to thinking, hey, I think this is actually it. You know, right. I, I really think this is going to be them. So what happens? I got with the FBI supervisor and I told him exactly what had transpired and said, we need to call Los Angeles immediately. This is them or this is something crazy going on here. You know, this is right. This is extremely unusual. This tipster is positive. It's it's them. And everything I'm finding in the databases is making me believe exactly what the tipster saying. And we need to cover this immediately. Um, and the uh, supervisor agreed. He, he gave a call out to Los Angeles. Um, we had a little bit of a delay. And uh, then we talked it over, <laughs> called a different agent out there in Los Angeles to say, hey, this, this is not a tomorrow thing. This is a get out there right now thing. When you called an agent in Los Angeles, did you, were you like, you got to call me back. We, we think we got Whitey Bulger. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. he doesn't call back. And you're like, what in the yeah, world could I, I you be doing? I made that first call. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. uh, but I was the one who, when there was a little delay, right? Uh, we had a little meeting and saying, uh, <laughs> we're, we're calling someone else because this is, uh, right. Yeah. This, this, I, and, and, and everyone agreed, you know, I, at that point, and we wound up getting in touch with an agent out there who I'd never met in my life, uh, named Scott Garrett uh, an, FBI, an FBI field agent out there. An FBI field agent who was working that day, who uh, was able to immediately respond. And uh, that agent and his team had eyes on the uh, address in Santa Monica within an hour. So yeah. you have eyes on, but the instruction is, look. Get a feel for what's going on. See what you can see. And eventually they uh, found out who the uh, the superintendent essentially of the building was. Right. And all that superintendent and uh, met, met him. A big thing that was in my mind is this was where he was living, but he left two days ago when the media blitz started. There's what what time is it? There's surveillance. There's how many guys that are in the in the neighborhood? And yeah, and right I don't now know how many agents they had. They definitely had multiple agents um, yeah. from the LA office. Some of them were task force officers, which are local and state officers who are full time, and especially deputized as FBI agents. Um, and yeah, they had surveillance going on for, for hours. But once they made contact with the superintendent, um, he was able to confirm, yeah, that's them. You know, he saw yeah. the picture and, and immediately said, oh, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. You know, that's that's them and gave the apartment number. And uh, so they knew at that point, you know, this this was it. This, you know, it was just a matter of how to how to approach this at that point. And even though you have the apartment number, do you now need to get a search warrant or an arrest warrant to go to go in, or is it enough um, to go knock actually, on the door? You do not. You do not need a search. Well, we already have an arrest warrant, right? When you, if you can prove that that is their primary address, you do not need a search warrant. Okay. Um, so at that point, they were probably uh, on solid ground 
uh, of going into the apartment on the arrest warrant only, because uh -huh. now you have the superintendent of the building seeing their pictures, saying, yes, that's them. Mm -hmm. And yes, they've lived there for like 10 years or 15 <laughs> years. Right. Uh, so uh, now sometimes it helps getting a search warrant, but not an absolute necessity. Who makes the call that, you know what, now's, now's the time and how yeah. are we going to do this? Well, Agent Gary Ola out in L.A., they were the ones making the calls on the ground, you know. Um, so he came up with a plan to have the superintendent call Bulger, call him and say that his storage unit in the basement, which he had a storage unit in this basement garage, was broken into and to come meet, meet him in the basement so they could check out the broken in storage unit. So I don't know if that had happened in the past. Maybe there was a history of that, but it right. seemed like believable. Um, the superintendent called Bulger and Bulger didn't answer the phone. But then two minutes later, Bulger called back and said, hey, did I miss a call from you? And okay. that's when the uh, superintendent said, yeah, meet me in the garage. Um, your, your, you know, your storage space has been broken into. And he fell for it. He okay. fell for it, you know, 16 years on the run and you know, I guess you can't be, you know, cautious all the time, you know, over all those years. And he fell for it. He came out of the apartment, went down into the basement, and that's where the takedown uh, happened. He came down by himself. So Kathy Grieg was still in the apartment. Right. Uh, obviously, she was a secondary target. She had an arrest warrant, too. But capturing her was much less less important right. than capturing him. And at uh, 81, so the presumption is. It's not going to be it's not going to yeah. be much of a fight or a chase. Probably not going to be a foot chase. But uh, then right. again, you know, he could have a gun. on him. I mean, right. that would and not be out of the realm of possibility. Did he have a gun on him? Not on him. But uh, the apartment was they were everywhere. <laughs> so oh, they were them, okay. them uh, luring him to the garage was a good move. Because when they after they took him down in the garage, they went up to the apartment and arrested Kathy Greek. And that's when they you know, eventually found guns throughout the apartment and $800,000 in cash. Wow. At what point do you get on a plane? So that I get the word that he's captured. I, I don't know. It's been about, I'd say eight o'clock at night or something like that. Eight or nine at night. I get the word that he's been captured. I'm actually in my condo in Boston at that point. And, uh, you know, just elated. Just can't believe that we actually finally brought this nightmare to a close in such a short period of time. Yeah. Uh, I was only over there for nine months. Felt very, very fortunate that, uh, cause it had been a rough nine months emotionally, you know, right. trying to, you know, even sometimes questioning yourself, am I chasing someone who might not even be alive? Right. Yeah. You know? right. Um, so it had been a rough nine months, but it'd only been nine months. I mean, there had been agents who had worked that case for years. Uh, the analyst who I mentioned earlier, she had been on that case. That was her only job for over a decade. Wow. Um, so think about the, the, the <laughs> mentality of going to work every day. Right. You know, your only goal is to capture this one person and it hasn't happened in 15 years. Um, so I, I got that call eight or nine o'clock at night, something like that. I was back in my condo at that point, you know, jumping up and down for joy, like a, like a nut. Um, and it was too late to get a flight out to LA. It was um, so we got a flight out the very first flight the next morning. And you got on a flight because he was going to be transferred back to Boston. Yeah, uh, we wanted to be out there for the search of his apartment. Uh, we wanted mm -hmm. to uh, be there for the court appearance and, and most importantly, bring him back as long as he waived uh, 
it's not called extradition. It's called a rule five in the federal system. But as long if he waived and said, I'll agree to go back to Boston, we could take him back right away. And he right. wound up waving in, in court that, that next day. So yeah, we, so we flew out the morning of the 24th, the day after the capture. And we were out there bright and early uh, in Los Angeles, uh, went to the apartment. Right. By that time, they had cleared out all the guns. They had cleared out the money, the guns, uh, but got to see the apartment and go mm-hmm. to court. Um, watch Bulger knocking out push-ups in the cell block. I mean, 81 years old, um, knocking out push-ups like crazy. Just like, wow. <laughs> just, uh, yeah. So let's talk about the trip back to Boston. I'm assuming that, you know, he had as some people get, certainly someone as infamous as Whitey Bulger, will have a private jet. It will not be flying commercial. In special cases like this, we actually had a, a FBI chartered plane that, uh, like a Learjet, and right. we, we flew out there to Los Angeles commercial, but we came back on a, uh, this FBI jet with just a handful of us, Bulger, Greek, a couple agents, and myself. So did you spend a, a bit of time uh, chatting with him? I did. Um, so picture that, you know, you've been on a like little Learjet before they have some seats that face forward and some yeah. seats that face backwards. Yeah. So there was four of us there, two agents, myself and Bulger uh-huh. all facing each other in a, in a square in a rectangle. He talked for the entire trip. <laughs> the amount okay. of words, you know, I probably said a hundred words or less the, the entire trip. And he probably said a hundred thousand words. I mean, he just talked and talked and talked nonstop for the, has he been, has he been holding it in for 15 years? And now that's he's the like, way, that's the way I interpreted it is he, uh-huh. he could not tell people who he was. He could not get that right. fear out of people, that respect out of people. He could not, you know, boost his ego for all those years. He had to live as like a quiet guy. who's trying to stay out of trouble, stay out right. of the limelight. And he just, he just wanted to talk, you know, uh, not directly admitting crimes, but talking all about crimes without admitting that he was the one responsible, you know, uh, but he just talked the entire trip. Do you remember any of the specifics of what he was talking about or and also what kind of impression did you get of him? You know, I, I think the the biggest thing that caught my attention is it was a very cordial conversation the entire time. Except at one point, um, Agent Torsney stopped looking him in the eye and started writing something down, something notes or something. Right. And that just infuriated um, Bald. You could see his mood just turn uh, on, a, on a second. You know, he went from being cooperative and, and, and somewhat friendly to just being furious that he stopped looking him in the eye. And he wrote something down and uh, that, that it, it, I don't think Bulger even said a word. It was the look on his face, you know, when he was just f- furious that he had written something down and broken that eye contact, you know, and uh, right. yeah, you could just see the personality a little bit right there about how he just, uh, you know. And, and at 81 years old, you still felt he had, you could look yeah. behind the eyes and you, felt you felt a certain that was the point where where you felt like you know oh yeah he's the type who could just explode in a in a second you know with something that minor you know and then like i said i don't think bulger even said a word 
Um, but it was the look he gave, you know, the look that came across his face when he felt like, uh, you know, he wasn't getting the respect he deserved and the eye contact he deserved or that he was writing notes and he didn't agree with him writing notes. Um, so yeah, but, uh, you know, 99% of the trip was Bulger talking about everything, but not saying, you know, he never said, Oh, I killed this guy. I killed this guy. I ordered this murder. He would say more generalities like, you know, so-and-so got killed because he was a bookmaker who thought he was a tough guy, you know, and he thought he wanted to turn into, you know, like things like that, that nature. Like he would say, this guy got killed because of that, but he would never say I did it or so-and-so did it. Or, you know, it was just generalities of uh, his entire criminal life. Did you Mirandize him? Because uh, I know it, sometimes when there's a outstanding yeah. warrant, the marshals don't uh, Mirandize sometimes. Typically marshal service. We, we sort of grab the guy. He has a warrant. We're not asking him anything. It just, you're wanted. We're bringing you to court. That's the end of it. But this was a little bit different. You know, this right. was a guy who, you know, 19 homicides on the indictment and uh, they were asking him specific questions. So they did Mirandize him. And, and I wasn't the one asking answer, uh, asking the questions. Agent Torsney was the one really asking the questions. It was really not my role. Right. Uh, to be asking him about yeah, homicide, great feelings of that nature. So I was more the, uh, you know, the agent who was witnessing this. So he goes back, you capture him on June 22nd, 2011. Yeah. At the trial, he is found guilty. And on August 12th, uh, 2013, some racketeering charges and participation in 11 murders is what yes. he was finally found guilty for. At 84 years old, he is sentenced to life in prison. Correct. And he bounces around for a couple of years to various prisons. And on October 30th, 2018, an 89-year-old Whitey Bulger is transferred to Hazleton Federal Prison. And within hours of him being there, Fellow inmates beat him to death. Some used a padlock in a sock. There were rumors that his eyes were gouged out, but he didn't last but a few hours at Hazleton. Correct. And were his killers linked to La Casa Nostra? Was this a full circle kind of coming around? I do not know a lot about the individuals um, who are alleged to have killed them. They've been charged now. They are from Massachusetts. But he did have organized crime links. He was in serving life partially for uh, an organized crime murder that occurred in Springfield. But I don't believe he had any known ties to Bulger himself that I'm aware of. But he was an organized crime type guy. He's a lot younger than Bulger. He was like 50 years old serving life. And he did have Massachusetts ties. So uh, in that prison, it was just notorious. They were having an out. A real outbreak of violence that, that there had been two other homicides in that that same federal prison in the prior months. Uh-huh. So it was a really, really dangerous uh, place. Even though he's 89, Whitey Bulger is still considered an informant, a rat, yeah. and that never goes away. And I believe, correct, and I believe from what I'm being told, um, Bulger was demanding to be in general population, you know, that he did not want to be separated. Um you know, that he always felt like he wanted to be, you know, in general pop with everyone else. Neil Sullivan, a deputy U.S. marshal for 26 years and four months, a manhunt that had taken 15 years. He comes on the scene and it ends uh, several months later. 
Oh, we should mention as well, the uh, tipster. Did the tipster get the $2 million? Yes. Well, thanks, Neil, for sharing the story of this case. And now everybody will know uh, the U.S. Marshal's participation in one of the highest profile apprehensions in, uh, in American crime history. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Stay safe, everyone.